Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Today, it's my great pleasure to welcome Christina McMillan from Topo. Christina, welcome. Thank you. Christina and I shared the stage at Rainmaker earlier this year and had an absolute blast getting to know each other and doing that. I'd already had a great respect for both Christina and Topo. If you don't know who Topo is, Topo is a research and consulting and advisory firm that focuses on go-to-market strategy for sales, sales development, and marketing. And one of the things I love about Topo is that they really do combine the best of strategy with the best of immediately actionable best practices, which is the kind of stuff that I love and I know our listeners love. Christina leads analyst teams who are focused on all of those. So once again, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'll start the way I start all these podcasts, which is to learn a little bit about you in two questions. And the first one that I like to ask is if you could share your favorite sales or leadership book of all time and and why it resonated with you so deeply. Two come to mind for me that have always sort of impacted me. One is Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. I like to think I read it before she was so cool. Now she's got like her own Netflix special, but like, um, I believe strongly in sort of this authenticity in the way you engage with people, whether it be from a leadership perspective or from a sales perspective. I think that that authenticity is what helps you make a deeper, more meaningful connection to try and get to, for example, someone's pain, to try and get them to open up, to try and get them to trust you. And so I believe that's been a very impactful one for me. And the second one that I always just thought was fun was actually Delivering Happiness, which was by Tony Shea, the CEO of Zappos, really just in terms of how they set up their culture to try and create this customer experience that trickled down uh, in every single employee and every single action they did. And I think that, again, there's a tangent there for sales that can be really beneficial to take away. Yeah, two outstanding ones. One of the things that's talked about a lot is that Zappos will hire people, put them through training, and then offer them it's It's been increasing amounts of money. I mean, it's multiple thousands of dollars to actually quit at the end of training. Yep. If they're not passionate about it. Yep. Or if they don't think they're a good fit for it. I think it's a great idea. Outside of Zappos, I'm unaware of companies that actually literally put their money where their mouth is to ask people to quit at the end of onboarding. <laughs> Especially after you've done that work. I think what that comes down to for me and what I've always found that translates to for sales is the passion. You have to really be able to get passionate about what you're doing or it becomes very obvious that you're not. And I think when we go in and we listen to auditing sales reps calls or helping teams, there's either reticence or a lack of enthusiasm. And nothing sort of spoils all of your training and your process and all of those efforts if it doesn't trickle down to some level of like, I want to be here and I want to engage with this person on the other end of the phone. Do you think that lack of enthusiasm is is nervousness or do you think it's really lack of passion for the products and services that the company is selling, some combination? Where do you think that comes from? Candidly, I think it actually comes from the fact that it's a really hard job to do sales, um, especially for, for example, SDRs or anyone that's doing prospecting, anyone that's doing a lot of the same thing over and over again. It's hard to kind of rally and keep that energy level up all day, every day. We actually spend a lot of time with managers helping them try to figure out how to craft a better day or help the team manage their time to also manage their energy. You know, we don't necessarily do, you know, coaching on that type of stuff, but it's an important thing to consider. Like 
the best reps will always be the ones that are standing up, walking around, that are trying to keep their energy up, that try to focus their calls into the time when they know that they're going to be the most focused and energetic, that kind of stuff. And I think that, you know, it can be a small thing, but it actually is a distinguishing characteristic of people who end up really excelling. A lot of the work we end up doing is giving people the structure to succeed. A lot of teams are still left to kind of figure it out on their own, even with internal enablement, even with training, even with frontline managers, but you still have a lot of reps that are kind of at their desk, not sure if they're doing the right thing. And so they settle upon what their own secret sauce is without necessarily having anyone check them or coach them or that type of stuff. Coaching is starting to see a resurgence with some of the conversational intelligence tools out there, which I think is just one of the greatest things that we could have hoped for. It's it's a reason for people to spend more time together to get better at their craft. And what those are offering is something to rally around to do it more often. And some of the nervousness or the reticence or that type of stuff is just because they're left alone. And so they just need the support to help figure it out. Yeah. Practice iterations in a feedback-rich environment. That's the key to success. Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. I've read one of the two. Daring Greatly, I have not read, but of course, I'm, I'm a big fan of Brene Brown's original TED Talk, and I think she might even have done subsequent ones as well. She hit the chord on vulnerability at, I think, just the right time that our society needed to have that wake-up call. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting, actually, because on that one, we listen to a lot of sales calls and we talk to a lot of managers and we we do a lot of email audits and things like that to really understand not just what everyone thinks is the right thing to to send out there, but what are they actually saying? What are they actually sending? It's funny because when we do these audits, people will put forth their best and we say, that's great. Now put forth your B plus because that's realistically what 60% of your stuff is. It's not the one that you spent 30 minutes to craft and, and make it perfect and beautiful and highly customized. It's what's all the other stuff. And so when we go in and look at that stuff, it's interesting because there's, there's two extremes. There's the highly generic, which means this could have been sent to anyone on the planet, whether or not they are in this role and care about this type of technology, or it literally is so detailed and potentially like overly personal. And so it's interesting because the thing I like about this whole surge in like vulnerability and being authentic and all of this, I think it's great, but I would just encourage salespeople to remember the context professionally. And a lot of that is, is like, it can be simple thinking about how to translate that into your messaging. It's something like getting to the heart of the matter for the person on the other end of the phone. And so when I'm calling someone, trying to really understand their persona and what's relevant to them and what they care about. So it's about putting myself in, in their shoes and maybe even just saying something, Hey, look, you know what? I actually talk to folks, you know, who are in a similar role to you all day. And I know one of the things that I hear is X. I'm just curious, is that something that you're struggling with as well? That connection is made not because I shared a lot about myself, but rather because I opened myself up to taking a chance at getting to something that might be valuable to them. What other types of messaging do you think resonate with people in a way that you're actually giving some value and not just trying to take 15 minutes of their time to conduct discovery on them. How can you give value in that initial messaging? Every conversation, you have to make sure you do three things. The first is you have to create context. And I'll talk a little bit more about how you do that. The second is you have to convey value. Again, this is a business conversation. I brought something to the table that is valuable to you. It could be a piece of information. It could be um, something I'm going to give to you. It could be something that we're going to do together next. And the third piece is making sure that there is guidance for what we go do next. 
it seems such like a no brainer for reps, but it's actually one that they often mess up the most, which is they don't provide clear direction of what we are going to go do together next. So it could be like, what is the very next step? Like I'm going to reach out and schedule time, or it could be like the, what is the next step in the sales process? Like the more we can be prescriptive such that, I mean, I often joke with teams that you got to make it seem like you've done this before. And when you leave people hanging, they get this uncertainty, which is like, so are you going to call me? Um, am I supposed to do that? Like they just get this nervousness that like, uh, what am I supposed to do? Whereas we've all had that experience when you go somewhere and it's a concierge like experience where they literally tell you this is going to happen. Then this is going to happen. Then this is going to happen. And let me go ahead and walk you over to step ones to get you started. And you're like, that was so easy. Like that was incredible from a customer experience. Cause we've led them along the way we've guided them. We're actually launching a a CX practice here at Topo. And one of the pillars of CX that we believe is strong is the guided aspect of customer interactions. You can't just tell them, you have to actually like show them, move them, guide them through so that they feel like, hey, we've done this before and other people have walked this path of success before. And that the person I'm with on this path is a credible guide on that path. And that's so important as a salesperson, again, right from the very first conversations that if I'm knocking on someone's door and asking for their time, I'm being prescriptive about that next step all the way through to like those final stages of how we get this deal done and get them set up as a successful customer. Again, those are create context, convey value and really close, which is for that next step. You were just asking like, how are some other ways that we can provide that relevance? And it really comes back to making sure that you can answer maybe these three or four questions about your buyer. How is this person measured? Like, what does good look like? What does success look like? How do they know if they're going to get their bonus or not? That's really important. Like, what are those different metrics or factors that they have to manage in their job? A second one is what requests or demands does this person hear in their job? Like what's the stressors from the organization in their job? Like someone in IT might be hearing all sorts of complaints that are different than someone in HR. A third is what gets in the way of this person's success? Could be resources, could be, I don't know, regulatory constraints. Lastly, an important one to us in sales is what happens if this person does nothing to solve this problem? You have to know where you fit in the pecking order. And I think that's so important. We all come at it with like, this is the most important thing to me as a salesperson to solve this problem for you. But how does it feel for the person on the other end of the phone? If it's a nice to have, well, we might actually want to acknowledge that there are other fires burning for them and try to help them understand where we fit in that. There's so much I'd love to unpack in that. But even the last bit on the nice to have versus need to have, I evaluate a lot of different tools and technologies And every one of them, or almost every one of them, I could conceive as adding value, but many of them feel like they're nice to haves. I also wanted to rewind to your first question there, which was, how are they measured? I would find that an awkward question. (laughs) Yeah. What do you find? Like, do you find people actually are willing to talk about personal value or is it really more willingness to talk about how they're measured professionally? You know, I've come across people on both sides of the fence that I respect that have very good positions on that. But here's here's my position. My position is, look, this is a work conversation and you have to earn the right for it to become a personal conversation. And I think it takes a long time to earn that right. We actually have one client who, you know, measures progress in their sales cycle um, and you can't pass a certain stage until you literally have exchanged a text 
with the buyer because that indicates that you've gone to a certain level of the relationship that they'll they'll exchange a text with you. For some people, it may work. I think it is a very tech SaaS thing. I think there are a lot of sales situations outside of tech SaaS that they're not comfortable with that. And so I think you have to lead with the role-based priorities. Most people like their personal selves and their work selves do merge, but you can't attack the personal side yet. It feels like a violation. You have to be able to come at it from their job, their role, people just like them in that role because they want to get better at it. And then if they start opening that up, you can follow that thread. But if not, I would encourage people to stay away from it. I sometimes joke, I take on my finger wagging mom stance. Um, but like, if you can imagine someone wagging a finger, it's like, be careful. Because um, I do think that some of those things can can get legs of their own and take on a context that when done in mass can be done poorly. And so it's interesting, because we spend a lot of time with organizations who are really exploring an account based go to market, or target account marketing, where they're really trying to get to that level of personalization. And I think that there definitely is a place for it. So I, I love the idea of like having a place to put it so the organization can retain that knowledge w- when it might be relevant. Yeah, it's a good point. I'm just thinking it has to feel special and genuine. Those special things need to be rare and not just feel like a mechanical exercise to win your favor because it can backfire on you. With account base, when it first launched, you know, a lot of sales teams um, were doing things like wine drops, right? Where they would literally just identify any prospect you want to send a bottle of wine to, and we'll send them a 30 to $50 bottle of wine. Well, that's a nice bottle of wine. We do it to get the first conversation, but the person's really not that interested. So we kind of like spent a lot up front and it's not just a money thing, but it's like, what about that person who was, how do we top that? How do we actually think about the rest of the experience along with our messaging to sort of show that we've escalated it appropriately. So like if you start with the big, nice, fancy thing to get them on the hook, and then you kind of never do anything after that, it can be a, a poorer experience. And so one thing that I'm seeing teams do is start by being helpful, start by making sure your information is targeted and relevant. And that comes back to messaging. Start by just making sure you're being helpful. And then from there, you sort of escalate to some of these other things, just like any relationship would. Um, when you're celebrating, right? So when the deal gets closed, maybe that's a great opportunity for in the customer journey or customer experience to to have a celebratory thing like a nice bottle of whiskey. And then you remember, like I find more and more sales teams are being tasked by their CRO or whoever, chief customer officer, to remember that the thing does not stop at the signing. We've now only just begun the journey. And so requiring sales to sort of think about or talk more about the other side of the fence not just the how we solve problems, but what it feels like to be a customer in the messaging, not just, again, the problems that we solved for a customer, but the ongoing things we're doing with customers. It can be a small change to the messaging, but it can be this thing that that creates a different feeling for your prospect where they're like, oh, I can start imagining myself as your customer, not just trying to get to that end state of signing the deal. On that transition from being a prospect to a customer, I read something recently about a company that was working in the traditional SaaS model where they had SDRs, AEs who were hunting, and then things handed off to CSMs who you know, might or might not have renewal responsibility. And they actually decided to convert their CSMs purely to people who would drive basically usage and value and engagement mm-hmm. and keep accounts with AEs after the transition. Precisely because of what you just described is that you had this discontinuity between the the selling experience and the client experience. 
And I think we're going to see more and more of the shifts as B2B CX becomes more and more of a thing. I mean, everybody's been talking about it for the last hmm, five to 10 years. Um, obviously, in B2C, it's been a much bigger thing. But B2B CX is sort of trying to adopt a lot of the things that many of us know in our own lives about the ways we want to consume or the things that personally delight us. We're trying to find those things in our B2B interactions that provide the same delight and the same value and, and you know the same sort of lasting relationship. For many of the reps that are listening, they're probably going, you know, yeah, that, that all sounds great, but what do I do differently? And I think that, you know, it's interesting. We're seeing a shift for the way individual reps are managing their lives and their time to try to align themselves around having the time, having the bandwidth and being able to actually execute on these types of messaging things. So I mentioned the create context, convey value and like close for that next offer. You can imagine that for some of the reps are going, oh, that sounds like that's going to take a lot of time. And so um, the way reps are organizing their day to get this done, I think is really interesting. So some we're seeing more and more teams that are literally blocking out their weeks where it's like, I'm going to have maybe not a full day, but like a research day, right? Or instead of just wandering through my tasks, I'm going to be very intentional about how I rally around my list. And it might be like segmenting my list into similar types of people so that when I say things like, hey, I've been talking with other such and such person in that same role, I actually have been because that's who I've been focused on all week long. And so it allows me to, to really drill into talking to that person in my mind, in my emails, in my actual communications. I'm talking with a person or a persona in mind. And so organizing their day to be able to highlight stories that are specific to that person, being able to craft messaging that's specific to that person. We're seeing obviously a resurgence in enablement. It's, it's kind of having its second heyday that it's no longer just training, but it's really about like real partnership, making sure reps have the right materials at the right time to execute. So whether or not they have that internally or they do it themselves, organizing their day to make the quality relevant execution more possible is, is very important. I want to talk about like immediately actionable things that people can do to create value in their messaging. Mm -hmm. What are some tips you have for people there? I think the number one thing is, I, it's like I hesitate to bring up this word because it's loaded, but stories. And it's so important that salespeople learn how to tell stories. Because if you think about like one of the core jobs of any sales rep, it is to communicate, right? And so how do you communicate something in a way that someone can remember it? Give them something to latch on to via the story. We've been out there talking a lot about use case stories, buyer stories, all of this kind of stuff. And we've seen some folks execute it very, very well. We've seen some um, sort of take it out of context and executed well. Here's what it looks like. I have to introduce the person. Now, ideally, it's more credible when I actually have a person. So we go in and we'll often audit success stories, right? So you have like the two pager that you often send as part of a PDF and it's like you send it and no prospect in their right mind are going to open a two-page PDF and read it just because you send them an email. Instead, how do I make that story stand out, right? So I might condense it, right, into a format that if somebody said, I don't have time to read that, can you just tell me about it? Well, often, if you do that on the fly, it sounds disorganized. It sounds like it goes off on tangents. It sounds too detailed in some cases, not enough in others. And so sales reps that get really, really good at figuring out how do I tell the story in 30 seconds or less? I have to get really good at the setup, so I have to introduce the person and their problem. I'll give this sort of acronym, if you will, to help people. Problem, solution, result. I have to introduce the person and their problem. 
I have to talk a little bit about what they've done to fix it. And what's the, so what of it, the result, what did it do for them? And so if I keep that in mind, and I've often, when we've worked with teams in the past, we'll say something like, keep in mind, like you should be able to get the whole thing out without taking more than two breaths. And so if it's like, I'm going on and on and on, and it's like, okay, this actually feels like it's going on and on. It probably sounds that way for the prospect on the other line as well. And so keeping in mind, like, how would I introduce problem, solution, result in a way that's very audibly manageable, if you will. And when I translate it to writing, I have to keep that same level of simplicity. Like we often have this juxtaposition between the way marketing writes and the way sales writes and sales writes as if they're having a verbal conversation or they should, whereas marketing writes as if somebody has time to sit down and read. And so it's going to be more formal. It's going to have more context, more just more stuff, more detail around it. And sales should resist the urge to add too much stuff. The stories, practicing them, thinking about how can I articulate the problem solution result for, again, back to the relevance is so important. And then you got to practice. You got to practice it out loud because if you're tripping up on it, chances are that person is like, it's interrupting their flow of understanding it, right? And so that, that I think hands down is still the, the best way we see teams communicate value today. And the story can be stories about value that you have delivered to your customers. There are other stories too, right? Like what you hinted at earlier, which is I've been hearing such and such from a customer. So you can make that real specific. It's like, I heard from you know, Jane Doe that she was wrestling with XYZ. Here's what Jane did and here's the result she got. And even if that has nothing to do with your product, that can be extremely valuable to them. As a salesperson, I think that it's so important that you consider how the person might feel about talking to a sales rep, right? They sort of always will have some guard up until they don't. So your job there is to try to build credibility and make sure that they understand that you are a point of value. And so the more you can talk about the detail of what it's like for customers, the more you can be that concierge for them, as well as talk frankly, talk about their peers, all this, that builds so much comfort and credibility for that person to want to engage. I mean, we do this a lot with SDR teams where SDRs, you know, being, being new to the sales world, often new to the working world, because they tend to be very junior in their careers. They often have this insecurity or this imposter syndrome. Like, why would that person want to talk to me? So I just want to get the fifth, I want to get them passed off to sales as soon as possible. And I think that it's like, it's important to remember that in your role as a salesperson or an SDR, you're talking to more of that type of prospect than that prospect is. The only time they get around as many people as you talk to in a week or a month is when they're at a conference. And so if you think about that perspective, you can almost become somewhat of a journalist. Here's what I'm hearing. In all the conversations we're having, in all the time we spend with people just like you, let me give you a little bit of a glimpse into what those conversations look like because you may be struggling with something similar. Now, of course, a lot of the reps on the phone are thinking, well, I don't have time to do all that. I've got to talk to so many of them. Of course you do. But doing a little bit of that upfront homework to come from that very credible stance is important. So I'll just revisit my, my PSR, my problem solution result. What comes in front of that, as I said it, but I'll say it again, is you have to introduce the person. So any story that's told in the context of this company did this thing automatically removes the, I'm talking to a person. I'm not calling Joe, who's just another cog in the machine of ABC Corp. I'm talking to Joe, who's in a very specific job. And I should tell the stories in the context of other Joes who are in a very specific job so that he can, I often use this phrase, but like you have to have that light bulb go off where they go, you get my life. That's right. You get it. You get what it's like. And if you don't make that connection back to the person, 
the story just doesn't seem to carry as much weight or as much credibility. Frankly, people think you made it up. We often work with teams to say, when you go and get those success stories for how you helped that account, try to figure out who was that actual person. And maybe we can't use their name, but maybe we can say, look, we, we work directly with, maybe we use their first name, or we're, maybe we just say, it, you know, they're the IT director over at such and such. But that makes it feel just more specific, more tangible, more, just more real, if you will. I'm with you. There's a humongous difference between when you can use a real person's name and a real company in a real situation. You actually had circled back around something that that was my follow-up question, which was about how to establish credibility. And that also relates back to the guidance on the next step, right? Which is to be a credible guide. I was reflecting on this this morning because I was reading about mutual plans, which I think are insanely valuable. And of all the buying experiences I've had, of which there are scores and scores in my career, you know, people pitching me B2B software and services, I can only think of one or two instances where the salesperson was hyper-disciplined on delivering and executing a mutual plan. In your travels, do you see that often or is that also pretty rare? Well, let me just say, I wish it were less rare than it was. So we often do that work with teams to help them establish that as a bona fide thing you do. And and we call it a closed plan, but it's a critical element in the process. And what it really is, is really just like you're getting close to the end. You need validation that you really are getting close to the end. And I find that the reason it doesn't exist in a lot of places is A, it feels like an extra step. Um, instead, reps want to get happier and believe that they're close enough and they don't need that. And I honestly think there are a lot of reps who are still afraid to ask for the close, right? If they start insinuating that, if they start doing these things, that it's going to halt or it's going to, you know, somehow not progress. And then it ends up not progressing anyway, because we got happy years, right? So I absolutely am a, I'm a huge fan of closed plans. I think they're essential. I think that they don't have to be overdone, but what it is, is you are putting down on paper a plan for you and that person shoulder to shoulder to go get this done for them. You're going to go get it done as a sales rep on your side, and you're going to help enable them to get it done on their side. But there's give gets, right? We have to make sure that they're with us at that stage in the process. And so I, I think they're absolutely fundamental. I honestly wish more teams had them. One of the things to think about for any of the reps, um, it's so critical that you actually are specific in everything that you do when you ask your buyer to do something for you. We'll often say, you know, it's, it's good to collaborate with that buyer, but I think it's even better to make sure that you, you tell them exactly what you need done to get it done for them. Making sure that you have a way for them to articulate internally what it is that you guys have talked about. So a proposal summary and not your full proposal, but like the proposed solution and the project scope. So you arm them with the language to go talk about it on your behalf because you know they're talking about it anyway. You want to try and preload that messaging to align to what you want them to say. The other is the same for the benefits. So if the proposed solution, the project scope is the stuff that we want to go do with them, we need to remind them shoulder to shoulder with that, the benefits to their organization. So what is the critical business objective that it gets done for them? And what are the key benefits or outcomes that they should expect from that? And then the third part is always the let's agree to the steps that need to occur. What are the literally the next project milestones that need to occur for us to go get this done? And who's going to own it? It could be you, the sales rep. It could be them, the buyer slash champion. It could be other folks on their team. But just saying, great, let's let's get shoulder to shoulder and figure out how we go get this done for you. Uh, I think it's just such a huge ask. Yeah, on the third one, my small ad is that your sales enablement team or your marketing team or your sales leadership team may put together a template for you of what the mutual 
close plan should look like. And I add the board mutual back in there because then you take that to your prospect and you say, here is how we find that this works for both of us, right? You want their feedback on two things. One is, are there steps in here that are not necessary in your process to get this done? The flip side is what's missing that you know in your process is necessary to actually get this done, right? So it's a little bit of, I guess, the two Ds that are in medic, the decision process and decision criteria. That mutual plan really helps bring that to the fore on both sides. My last way for listeners to get to know you, and I think it's a fitting way to wrap here, is to ask you the first thing you ever remembered selling and maybe how that relates to some of the things we talked about today. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So um, it's so interesting. Um, I had a, a very unusual path in sales, but the very first thing I, uh, I was an SDR back in the day working for a market research firm, and we had to call and basically secure an hour of time with a C-level executive for an interview. It was really hard. We had to call and basically get that time. And then we had to conduct the interviews. And I think I did 150 of them. But it was it was literally asking executives for their time for an hour for an hour with a C level executive. But I didn't know at the time that that was a hard thing. I guess that's uh, what is it? It's like unconscious competence, right? Sometimes <laughs> not not knowing how difficult it is. Well, that was one of the best lessons in relevance. The study was all around trying to understand what problems they had and how it resonated, and so I had to communicate with them quickly about why they should spend an hour and then the value that they would get out of the hour, even though we were collecting information from them. And so it became, I really had to figure out how to articulate it to that CIO in that industry. And we called multiple different types of industries to to help them want to spend that time. And so it quickly became a lesson in not just asking for the hour, but rather trying to articulate the benefit to them and what they would get out of that hour. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about give to get. Well, Christine, I want to thank you so much for your time today. As, as always, it's been a blast and I've learned a tremendous amount from you. Thanks. This was fun, Jeremy. Appreciate it. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopento. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thank you for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.